Morning, church. Um, I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. Psalm 12. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another, with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. It's God's word. Thank you, Eli. Please pray with me, church. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask, Lord, that as we've read this portion of Scripture, that, God, you administer to us and speak to us today. Lord, we believe that your word is true. We believe that your word, even as we read in that verse, is pure. And, God, we invite you now to minister to our hearts and continue the great work that you're doing in each of us who, by faith, have trusted in your Son and are being conformed into his image. God, thank you for gathering us here this morning to worship and song and now to worship through studying your word and, and not just trying to gain understanding, but actually trying to apply your word, to live lives that are obedient to you so that we might glorify you. So Father, would you please minister to your church today? And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Was I the only one feeling inc incredible anxiety when the first thing out of Hank's mouth was, I worship Satan? I was like, where is he going with this? What is happening? Um, I'm glad you don't worship Satan, Hank. That's good news for us. Um, but what a powerful testimony. And that is the power of God's word, of course, that the Holy Spirit uses the written word of God to get a hold of people and to transform people's lives. And we're encouraged here this morning to once again open the word of God and allow it to minister to each and every one of us. Psalm 12, the title of my message this morning is, When Even the Godly Have Vanished. When Even the Godly Have Vanished. <clears throat> I'd say that one of the most discouraging things in the Christian life is when you see other people fall away from the faith. I've been walking with the Lord long enough now to have seen numerous people who at one point were in the church every single Sunday, were worshiping the Lord, and yet They've drifted, they've backslid, they've even completely fallen away and denied the Lord and forsaken the Lord. Like some of you, um, I've seen not just new believers do that, I've seen people who were seasoned saints, people who had been in the church for many years. In fact, I could even point to people who were instrumental in my own discipleship, who have tragically walked away from the Lord. And as a Christian, that's very discouraging. As a Christian, that can be quite uh, deflating to your faith and disillusioning to say the least. In the life of the great prophet Elijah, 
in the book of 1 Kings, one of his absolute low points was when he was experiencing spiritual depression because he felt alone and he felt alienated when he was being persecuted by Jezebel. Here's his words in 1 Kings 19, 14. Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And then here's the key. He says, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's looking out at Israel at that time, and all he sees is faithlessness. All he sees is those who were supposed to be the godly ones turning their back on Yahweh rejecting the Lord and he's looking out and saying man I'm like the only one I am the only prophet who is still honoring and serving and worshiping the Lord well this brings us to our text this morning because David in Psalm 12 feels a similar angst as he surveys the landscape of his society he looks out and he tells us in verse 1 that the godly one is gone For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. He's looking out and he's saying, man, where are the righteous? Where are the godly ones? Why are God's people no longer being faithful to the covenant, to the commitment that we had made to the Lord based on the commitment that he had made to us to to make us his own special people, his own treasured possession? We're supposed to be faithful to that covenant. And David's looking out and saying, The faithful have vanished. In verse 8, he builds on this idea in the conclusion to this psalm. He says, There on every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So if David does a 360 and he spins around and he looks in every direction, he says the wicked are, are prowling all around. Again, the godly have disappeared. The righteous, the faithful have completely vanished from the land. Needless to say, in Psalm chapter 12, things were quite bleak for David, the righteous one. It was like the days of Judges. Remember the very last verse in the book of Judges. It's such a tragic commentary on that whole season in Israel's history. Here's Judges 21-25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No longer was God's word the standard. No longer was God's righteousness the metric by which the Israelites were measuring themselves. No, they just did whatever was right in their own eyes. Morality was relative. They just kind of figured it out for themselves. And so during that season, just like during Elijah's life in ministry, just like now in David's time in Psalm chapter 12, they're looking out and they're saying, man, even the godly have vanished. What can we do? Well, David, as he assesses his community in this way, finds himself in Psalm 12 drawn to prayer. What a great response. Now, this psalm can be divided in a bunch of different ways, but one way to divide it, and the way I'm going to divide it today, is dividing it in two parts. And the first one is verses 1 through 4. This is sort of the structure of the psalm here. In verses 1 through 4, David cries out to God for deliverance, And he describes the situation. He's looking and describing what's going on. He's crying out to God. 
And then in verses 5 through 8, you'll notice that David, he hears from God in verse 5, and then he has his confidence restored. In this psalm, like so many of the other psalms, even some that we've already studied, what happens is David is in crisis mode because of some really challenging circumstances, and he goes to God in prayer, he hears from the Lord, and he finds that his confidence is restored. He finds that he once again is reminded of why the Lord is, is worthy of being trusted. So part one begins with a cry for God to act. Here's what David says in verse one. Verse one, he says, save, O Lord. This isn't a complex uh, plea for help. This is a very short, succinct, direct cry for help. Save, O Lord. He's just saying, God, would you deliver? Would you save us? David here needs deliverance and protection from the wickedness that is all around him. Now, verses 2 and 3 typify the people of his day. Look at verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. We see here that the turning away of the people in David's day is characterized like this. It's characterized by ungodly words or speech. It's bad speech. This is characteristic of this rebelliousness, this ungodliness in David's time. He points out that these people are liars, that they're flatterers, and that they're duplicitous. In other words, they tell you what you want to hear to manipulate you and get their own way. And they're mighty good at it, right? Look at verse 4. He says, he's, he's kind of quoting the ungodly, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who will master us? So they're good at this. They have the gift of gab. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you're a person who just is so good with words. A silver tongue. A smooth talker. You can persuade people so easily. You could sell ice to an Eskimo. Right? You're just good with your words. Well, that could be a blessing. You can use that for great good. The Apostle Paul wanted to persuade people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And he used his words in that endeavor. But that giftedness can also be abused. These people in David's day had abandoned the Lord and they had abandoned any idea of being faithful to the covenant. And so what we find is that instead they were just in it for themselves. And these people could talk their way out of any problem and they could talk their way into any deal. And what they would do with that is they would use that to pervert justice. They would swindle the poor. They would swindle the powerless and they would leave people in great need and great distress. And so the saving that David has in mind in verse 1 is revealed in verse 3 where he asks the Lord a very simple request. He asks the Lord to silence these evildoers. Now he uses very graphic language in his request. He asks the Lord to cut off flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. Now, he's not literally asking God to slice their lips off or cut their tongues out. This is 
kind of a hyperbolic or exaggerated way of saying, Lord, silence these evildoers. Get them to stop lying. Get them to stop manipulating. Get them to stop being flatterers. Get them to stop using their words to oppress the powerless. Silence them, Lord. So in this first section, we've looked at the words of the ungodly, but now comes the important part of the psalm. Now comes the turning point of the psalm. Now comes the words of God. In part one, the wicked spoke, and now in part two, God speaks. Look at verse five. David here is quoting the Lord. And God is saying, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Spurgeon noted that nothing moves a father like the cries of his children. Dads, isn't that true? Nothing moves a father like the cries of their children. The groaning of the needy in Psalm 12 stirred the heart of God. This reminds us of the book of Exodus. Some of you will remember this part in the beginning of the book of Exodus. When that book begins, God's people, his children, the apple of his eye had been in slavery in Egypt for about 400 years. And circumstances for God's people had gone from bad to worse. The Pharaoh that was ruling and reigning in Egypt at this time, when you get to the beginning of Exodus, was a wicked Pharaoh. And he was making the work for God's people who were his slaves intolerable. He was giving them less materials and less tools and less resources to make bricks, but he was still demanding the exact same quotas. And so the workload was just crushing. It was suffocating to God's people as they were slaves in Egypt. But that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was that Pharaoh actually made a command that all of the sons of Israel that were to be born should be taken and should be cast into the Nile River. It was infanticide. Pharaoh was concerned because his slave population was getting too large and he was worried that there could be a slave revolt. And so his solution was, we're going to start executing all of the boys. We'll kill them all. And that way we'll thin out the population. And so in this desperate time, what were God's people supposed to do? They didn't have the strength to rise up against their oppressors. Here's what they did. We read in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God heard their groaning. God saw the oppression. And God's heart was moved with compassion for his people. And of course, the very next chapter, Exodus chapter 3, God raises up a deliverer named Moses. And God sends Moses in to deliver his people from oppression. We see the same thing going on here in Psalm 12. What's unique here is that unlike many other psalms, where the psalmists who are in a desperate situation are crying out and they're saying, Lord, would you please arise? Would you get up and would you do something? Would you act? Would you deliver? 
That's what happens in many of the Psalms. The psalmist is asking God to stand up from his throne and to respond to their urgent need. Think even back to Psalm 7, which we studied about a month ago, verse 6. There the psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. So in other psalms, the psalmist is saying, Lord, rise up. Notice in verse 5 that it's different. In verse 5, God just announces that he is going to arise. God tells David in verse 5, he says, because of what's going on, I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The point here is that the suffering and the oppression of the lowly has brought God to action. And it usually does. All throughout Scripture, we see that God places himself on the side of the oppressed. And God stands against the oppressors. God expects that those with power and privilege should utilize it for the good of other people. But human nature almost always turns power and turns authority and turns influence and turns privilege into oppression. We need to be reminded this morning that God will judge the oppressor, even if he or she is a Christian, especially if he or she is a Christian. You and I should know better. You and I should be a people that if we have power, if we're in a position of authority, if we have resources at our disposal, we should know that God expects us to use that, not to harm other people, not to manipulate other people, not to oppress other people to get more for ourselves, but that we're expected to use that for the good of other people, to use that to serve and to bless others. There's a terrifying warning in James chapter 5. James here is, of course, writing to a Christian community. And he writes this. This is a little bit lengthy, but listen to what his warning is. Starting in verse 1, James says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, I do need to say that in the ancient world, typically those who were wealthy were wealthy because of exploitation. They were wealthy because of oppression. And so there was nothing like sort of a free market system in the ancient world where people could enter into contracts with each other and accrue wealth. So the problem in James chapter 5 was not 
that they had money per se. The problem was that they abused their power and their, uh, their authority again. They were holding back the wages of their laborers instead of giving them their due. They were robbing from their poor laborers. They were oppressing these people to indulge themselves. But the baseline point is that they were abusing the place that they had. They were abusing the resources that they were blessed with. They were, they were abusing the power that they had. And God is threatening in James chapter 5 judgment against them. God's heart is for those who are oppressed. Here in Psalm chapter 12, God rises up to deliver them. And this word from God, this assurance that God will deliver changes everything for David. Once God says it, that settles it. It's as good as done. Because, look at verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Notice now the contrast between the hollow and deceptive and destructive words of the ungodly and now the words of God. God's word, we read, is like precious metals that has been tested in the fire and his words are perfectly pure. The mention of seven times, um, it indicates perfection and it indicates unsurpassed purity. What David is saying is he's saying, look at the word of the Lord is perfectly pure. Peter Craigie, commentator on the book of Psalms, writes this. He says, unlike the speech of the wicked, the words of God are free from the dross of flattery, lies, and vanity. C.H. Spurgeon on this passage wrote this. He said, in the original, there is an allusion to the most severe purifying process known to the ancients, through which silver was passed when the greatest possible purity was desired. The dross was all consumed and only the bright and precious metal remained. So clear and free from all alloy of error or unfaithfulness is the book of the words of the Lord. I love this part. He says, the Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophic doubt, and scientific discovery, and has lost nothing but those human interpretations which clung to it as alloy to precious ore. The experience of saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but not a single doctrine or promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat. End quote. The word of God can be taken to the bank. The word of God is trustworthy. It's reliable. It's true. It's pure. And therefore, David has no problem taking God at his word. When God announces in verse 5 that he will arise, that he will deliver, David believes it. Look at verse 7. David says, you, O Lord, will keep them, speaking of God's words or God's promises. He says, you will guard us from this generation forever. Once again, we see in the Psalms that prayer changes everything even while nothing changes. What do I mean? What I mean is this. David here hears a word from God and he is moved from anxiety to confident trust. 
Okay, he goes into prayer with the Lord and he hears a word from the Lord and all of a sudden, instead of being full of anxiety and fear, he's moved to a position of confident trust and yet the situation has not been resolved yet. How do we know? Look at verse 8. David says, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So while David's praying, it's not like all of the wickedness in Israel is gone and all of a sudden there's been a replacement and it's a bunch of godly, faithful people again. They're still prowling on every side. But this is what prayer can do. We go to God in prayer. We claim his promises which are recorded in his word. And the Holy Spirit assures us that God's words are certain And therefore, we come out of our time of prayer with a bolstered faith, with a renewed trust, with a renewed confidence, with a changed perspective. And so, yes, in a sense, there are times when we go and we pray in our distress and nothing changes. And yet for us, everything has changed. Some people say prayer changes things. Other people often say prayer doesn't change our circumstances, prayer changes us. But the truth of the matter is that both of those things can happen. Prayer does change things. There are times that you go to God in prayer and you ask God for something. Lord, I need a job like yesterday. Rent is due. I need the money. Or Lord, we need a healing now. It is desperate. We need a touch from you now. There are times we go to God in prayer like that, and guess what? The circumstances change. God moves in our situation right here, right now, and our minds are blown, and we say, Lord, you're amazing. Thank you so much. So prayer does change things. But even if God doesn't change our circumstances because in his mysterious providence, he knows that it's better that the trial stays, every single time, that you and I go to God in prayer by faith, we will come away a changed person. How so? Because God in prayer will reorient our perspective and he reassures our hearts and he once again gifts us with his presence. Now in one sense, this psalm is about words, right? The psalm began with the words of the wicked or the unfaithful. And then the psalm ended here with the words of God. Christians need God's protection from lies and slander and deception. And David definitely wanted that. Save me, Lord. Deliver. The wicked are all around wreaking havoc with their bad speech. And so Christians need protection from God. But not only so that the lies or the slander or the deception of the ungodly don't wreak havoc in our lives. We need God's protection even more so for this reason. So that you and I don't pick up the same weapons that we're being attacked with and fight back with them. What do I mean by that? I mean this, that the great temptation that you and I are faced with as Christians with sinful speech, is the temptation to respond in kind. 
that somebody comes at you with destructive, ungodly, evil speech, and the temptation is to respond in kind. Who here has never been cut by somebody else's words and then lashed back out at them? We all have. Who here has never been in an argument with someone and been the one that added to the escalation? All of us have. All of us, when we're in that moment and we're the victim, so to speak, of evil words, destructive speech, there's a temptation raging inside of us to respond in kind, to get even, to fight fire with fire. Instead of responding in kind, the message of Psalm 12 is that we, the children of God, must resist the temptation to use our words against people, even people who deserve it, and instead place our hope and trust in God's word, which is solid and never changing. Family, we have to remember that God's word promises us that people are going to reap what they sow. God's word promises us that God is the ultimate judge and that vengeance belongs to him. God's word promises us that he will deliver the oppressed. And God's word promises us that for those of us who have experienced his grace and are becoming more like Jesus, he promises us that after we share in Christ's sufferings, we will certainly share in his glory. 1 Peter 4.13 tells us as much. Peter writes this to persecuted, suffering Christians who are being slandered by the non-Christians of their day. He said, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Therefore, family, let us follow Christ's example. When he was the victim of abusive and evil speech, here's what Peter also says in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. He writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Look, I understand this isn't easy. And I understand that you and I are swimming upstream. We live in a time when the wicked prowl on every side and vileness is exalted among the children of man. Pastor Tim Keller said, Perhaps it has never been truer than now that what is vile is being honored by the human race. And so many people will throw in the towel. Many people will just go with the flow. Many people will retaliate in kind. Many people will just say, what's the use? Why, why do I have to be guarded in my speech? Why do I have to care about if I'm offending others or destroying others? Or, well, why do we care? We care because God cares. Because the word of God is pure and true. Because our Savior teaches us how to use our words to bring blessing and flourishing and life to those who are around us. And so although many will go with the flow, although many will retaliate and respond in kind, for those of us who know Christ, for those of us who have the Holy Spirit, for those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, 
Will we now reject his promises? Will we now deny his character? May it never be so. Let us with David declare verse 7 over our lives, over our families, over our church family. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much this morning for this word from Psalm chapter 12. Lord, it's a word that that we all need because we do live in a time where it feels as if those things that are vile are being exalted by this generation. It feels at times like we're, we're living through a season sort of like David's where you can look around and say, where are the godly? Many of the godly have vanished, it seems like, and ungodliness abounds. And Lord, we certainly live in a time with unrestrained evil speech, destructive words. We can look at the political environment. We can see that things like decorum feel like they've gone out the window, that people just exchange jabs and insults at each other. We see it in the media. We certainly see it all over social media. Perhaps we see it in our workplaces. Perhaps this is happening in our own homes. Lord, I pray that you would remind us, those who are followers of Christ, that God, these things are not going unnoticed by you. Particularly those words that are being used to destroy and tear others down. Those words that are being used to manipulate and oppress the weak, the needy, or the poor. Lord, you see these things. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who speak truth, that we would be a people who use our words to edify, to encourage, to build up. That, Lord, the speech that flows out of our lives, especially when we've been the victims of gossip or slander or manipulation, that the speech that flows out of our lives would be life-giving, And Lord, we pray that we would use our words most fundamentally to share the good news of the gospel with other people. The news that tells us that even the ungodly have hope. If they would just come to their senses and turn from their sins and look to you, Jesus, they can find forgiveness and grace and healing. So Lord, I pray that we would be a people who use our words to preach that good news the news of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the only hope for the world. And Lord, we pray that as we share that message, that many people would come to put their faith in Christ. Lord, that you would transform hearts, and as you do that, it would transform words. And as words are being transformed, that you would transform relationships and marriages and families and churches, and communities, and states, and even this country. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that in Christ, all of our bad speech has been forgiven. Lord, help us to live lives that demonstrate our gratitude for your love and for your grace, and help us to glorify you and to honor you 
with all that you have given to us. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.